This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. I have a confession. I've been sat at my desk trying to come up with an introduction. I feel appropriate for my guest today. I think I might have failed. There's a role in my artistic history that's been played by this artist, which I can't seem to put in words. So uh, I'll just go with what came up. Sheila Chandra's journey is as heart-wrenching as it is heartwarming, as terrifying as it is inspiring but most importantly, as relevant in 2020 as it was in the early 1980s. When the 16-year-old Chandra hit the UK top 10 as the first British Asian, even while navigating the murky waters of an era designed to have a torn between representing a minority, all too happy to project their hopes and baggage onto a first-time event, and an ancestral country who still tended to respond with their knee-jerk snobbishness towards a culture they could only categorize as semi-something at best. An innovator who might easily be described as one of the founding artists of the genre world music before it actually went on to become a mainstream label. The abrupt end with which her prolific writing and musical career met and the transition shortly after into a career as author and coach. While still carrying a strain of brilliance as a common factor, leaves the romantic with an imaginative plethora of speculations of how she might have sounded today, and the cynic with the silver lining of how her artistry remains timelessly untouched by the generic nature of a genre that's come increasingly in focus of late, for reasons a lot of us would probably categorize as somewhat questionable. Oh yeah, I should also let you know, as you'll hear in the interview, Sheila needed to take three days off talking before and after this interview, so my levels of gratitude for the same are probably beyond words. Alright, let's do this. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Well, to start off it, can I just say, this is an enormous honour, in case I hadn't made that clear. Um, it's very sweet of you, <laughs> I don't know why, but it's, thank you very well, much. Well, I can tell you, on multiple levels, I grew up on your music, and I mean, that in itself says a lot. I usually start off these conversations with um, a walk down memory lane with regards to what my first memory of my guest is. And in oh. your, your case, uh, it was a friend of mine in college. I went to college in Germany uh, study, to study music. And all my quintessential German friends uh, who used to be a singer, she said, dude, do you know Sheila Chandra? I was like, who's Sheila Chandra? I said, you got to check this out. And... The funny part being, once I listened to the record she was referring to... Weaving my ancestors' voices, yeah. The, the Conical composition. Yeah. That's one. Uh, it actually reminded me of how I'd 
grown up to your music while I was a toddler in London. And that that kind of hit me with a range of flashbacks. So you had actually heard me earlier than in college, but you hadn't. Exactly, exactly. So I, I've had one of those uh, very um, blurry childhoods where my parents were traveling around different parts of the world and working. So I spent the most, the earliest part of my childhood in London, then moved to Europe and then to India and then moved back to Europe. So there's a lot of blurry memories from my childhood. And, right. Yeah. Exciting though. Yeah. Well, amongst other things, yes, exciting is one of the adjectives <laughs> that could be used. But point being, rediscovering your music uh, was an experience that's been a big step in kind of figuring out a lot of things about who... I've been as an artist. With a kind of rediscovery of your roots or? Ah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how strange this sounds, but I think rediscovering my roots in London. No, I know exactly what you mean. The Weaving Ancestors Voices album was the first one I did for Real World, and they would list the continent that the artist was from. So if you were from Asia, you might be in the blue band, and if you were from Europe, you might be in the, in the orange band, or it would say Europe. And on mine, they listed me as being from Britain. You know, yeah. there was, they were totally up for recognising me as a British artist and a product of uh, my roots in Britain as well as my roots in Asia. How did that make you feel at the time, if I may ask? Oh, I requested it. At that time, world music was in a sort of, um, it was all about the analysis of music and where it came from and how obscure it was. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to point out that I was part of um, a diaspora, part of a part of the second generation, part of a living tradition. That was to do with the, a melange of influences around me, rather than being something pure. I wasn't. This is the word eth- ethnomusicographer. I wasn't. I wasn't mm-hmm. someone who was studying music in that very. Um, and there was almost at that time uh, an obsession with purity. And, oh, really? Um, well, in world music, yeah, I, I think there was a little bit. I mean, there was some interesting fusion projects around, but there was also, in terms of numbers, an equal, if not greater, number of albums that were. Um, oh, you'll never hear this because it's it's from Madagascar and it's you know like, mm. it, no, it's the traditional music there, or this is the folk music of Rajasthan. We're all all very worthy projects but equally sometimes hard to relate to and uh, so yeah I was, I was i was happy to be listed under britain and uh in the earlier rough guides i was also listed under britain rather than under the asia section which changed later on they changed their policy but at the time that weaving my ancestors voices was released i was i was talked about under Britain alongside, you know, folk singers like Martin Carthy. Have you ever found um, the entire categorization of world music per se irksome in any manner? Yeah, because I am one of the few so-called world artists who experienced putting out what would now be called world music before the category of world music was ever invented. Exactly. So... Uh, uh, I don't know how much you you know of my very early career, but um, I was in this band called Monsoon, and at the age of 16 in 1982, yeah. um, we had a worldwide hit with a really radically different sounding track called Ever So Lonely. 
um, it was a hugely um, deep fusion of the the kind of crash beats of the day, the kind of rock sounds of the day, uh, along with lots and lots of acoustic sources like um, uh, Siva and Tabla and uh, Chinese gong and uh, all sorts of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And we were fusing North Indian classical music with pop music. And it also went contrary to what was in the charts because synths had just come in and you, you had the sort of traditional duel of Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran at the top of the charts. So that was the kind of music we're talking about. And that's the kind of era we were talking about. And orchestral music in the dark and all that really electronic stuff. Mm. Um, so there was this was this incredibly fresh acoustic sound, which kind of the fusion of which blew everyone away. Now this was 1982. There was no such thing as world music. So, the rec- and we were with a mainstream record company, we were with, with uh, Phonogram, hmm. which later became Mercury. So, shops racked us alongside all the other chart stuff. You didn't have to go into a special section. There were no specialist programs, there were no specialist DJs, there was no specialist print media. And we got the front cover of Sounds, uh, we got huge, we got Record of the Week in three three papers, I think it was Sounds, NME and Melody Maker. Mm. Um, And there was no division. There was no othering. And then I can understand why. I know at least of one world music label that was effectively born in the heart as a result of someone hearing Monsoon in the the corner shop and couldn't believe what they heard and realised there was a commercial potential for um, for world music, and this person started a world music label. Maybe ask which label that is. It was Jan Scott at Triple Earth. I don't think he'd mind me saying that. But then he uh, he nurtured uh, Najma and her guzzle jazz fusion. So that was really important to the late 80s when I was on sabbatical. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you, you, um, so... I can see from a market point of view with a lot more labels specialising in a certain type of music why you would want to invent a brand for it almost. But um, I think it has resulted in the apartheid of media around um, around world music artists, which is a great shame. Any, well, I had the risk of making a... Well, asking a blank good question, any idea where the roots of that phenomenon lies? I ask you because I feel like you've had the opportunity to observe exactly at which point that started happening. So I was wondering if you had any insight in information on what exactly motivated that change. Well, if you want the cynical answer... <laughs> I'll take whatever you feel was correct. Do you know how it is as a person of colour? Sure. In, in a white space? Right. And if you're one of the few people of colour in a white space, if you're one in 200, then you're kind of accepted far more than if you're one of 50 in 200. So true. Once you start pushing the numbers up, people start wanting to... People, I think, are a little bit worried that their mainstream values are going to be influenced influenced or diluted or in some way threatened, that their identity is going to be changed. And in a way, they're right. Mm. Because once you start getting the numbers up, the people of colour in the room start demanding that their, their concerns are taken into account and uh, that things are made accessible for them. And um, some people find that to be a gigantic pain in the neck. 
and they don't want to do it. Right. And I think by, I think by othering world music, you essentially were able to say to people, oh, don't worry, this is music you'd be interested in a bit like a musical tourist. But it isn't music that has to touch your heart. Now, the difference is on the dance floor in 1982, people were dancing their hearts out to ever so lonely. They couldn't have cared less that in the, for eight bars, eight glorious bars in the middle of the 12 inch, and it was a really good 12 inch. It wasn't just uh, edited up of, of more of the same. It was, it was constructed as a 12 inch and then edited down to a seven inch. Wow. For eight bars in the middle of that, the, the crash beat gets pulled out. All the other instrumentation gets pulled out. And essentially, you're listening to Jaws, Harp, Sita, and Tabla. You're dancing to a classical raga. And no one gave it a thought. That's amazing. It was absolutely radical. And this is at the point where I went on Top of the Pops. I don't know if you know in Germany, but Top of the Pops used to be our big chart program. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, in those days, there were only three channels in the UK, and everybody watched Top of the Pops. I mean, even even sort of the grannies knew basically what was in the charts because there was there was nothing in the way of video games or social media. There was, there was nothing kind mm. of diluting our attention. So films and music were... And then, you know, your, your big TV programs, they were, everybody knew all about them in, in terms of water cooler chat, as it were. And I went on um, TV, I went on Top of the Pops in a sari. Um, I think I was pr- probably or possibly um, the first South Asian woman to do so. Um, I was only the second singer to go on in a sari, the, the, the lead singer of M. Uh, which was just a pop band, um, had done so previous, in a previous year. But um, the producer of the track was talking to a fan a year or so later and mentioned that I was Asian, and the fan said, no, she's not Asian. And he said, well, yes, she is. I mean, it's an Indian-influenced track. She's Asian. And they went, well, but Asians don't go on top of the pops. So to have those two contrasts, to have people dancing to a raga and then not recognising what they're seeing because, because to them it's, it's just us, it's our culture. Mm. Looking at how world music is treated today by the mainstream, by the media, you can see what a difference there is. If I may ask you to elaborate on that, what in your opinion would be the major changes that have happened since? Um, well, the invention of the term. Right. The, the invention of the term world music, because as soon as you have a term, you can start racking the music separately. Gotcha. Uh, on, the, on the shop floor, you can start saying, I'm a world music DJ. You can start saying, I'm a world music journalist. Uh, this is a world music podcast. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. If there's no such term, there's no, you can't do that. The irony is, it was a great single. The Monsoon single was, a, I'm very proud of it. It was, if you ever get a chance to listen to the original version and not one of the remixes, it's a great single. But I doubt if it were released 10 years later, after the invention of the term world music, it would have been given half a chance. It wouldn't have been a hit. Wow. Um, right, I'm actually right in front of your bio here on your website, which is really well made, by the way. I've been studying it since last night. So well done. I just got myself like some serious education. I, I'm, I'm def- that's definitely going to be a part of the interview I'm going to rewind and listen to quite a few times, I think. Especially uh, some of my contemporaries and even younger um, colleagues really need to listen to that. It's, 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 
enlightening how much and how much has and hasn't changed. Yeah. Where did you meet Steve Coe? How do you guys meet? He decided he he was writing the material for Monsoon. So he he was a uh, he'd been in the music business for fourteen years. Right. He was a writer, songwriter, and a producer, and he lived next door to an Asian family, hmm. and he he heard their Hindi film records from the golden era of the early sixties, wow. where the songs drew on a lot of classical and folk influences, and he just loved the form, and he thought uh, this is nobody's doing anything like this. I really want to write some fusion tracks and make a band to to play this material. And I was I had been at a theatre art school from the age of 11. Wow. And at 14, I had, um, there was this defunct, then defunct project that uh, where they were trying to put together an early boy-girl band um, it was it was uh, it was unknown in those days, but the idea was to have uh, singers between the ages of fourteen and eighteen. And so they went round all the theatre art school and said, "Who do you have that can sing and that looks right and all that?" And so I'd done a series of recordings uh, that were just demos for um, Hansa Records, who had just had Bernie M, uh, who were absolutely massive everywhere. Hansa wow. were or a German label. Yeah. Um, they were riding high off the top of that and they wanted to put together this band. Well, nothing happened with the band. But Steve Coe happened to know the receptionist of Hansa. Huh. So he was looking for a singer. So he went up to Hansa and said to the receptionist, um, I'm looking for a singer. It's a little bit like this. Um, what do you have in your rejected demos box? And Two years later, the tape was still sitting there. And he heard my voice. He didn't know anything about me. He didn't know my name. He didn't know anything. He just played the tape. And he saw, thought, that is the voice of Monsoon. And he said to her, can I see a picture? So she pulled the picture because they'd done a photo session. And he found out that I was Asian. He was fully prepared for me to be white. Wow. But... And also, I had been on this BBC children's TV drama, which was quite cutting edge at the time, quite gritty. Uh, And I'd been in that for two years. So I already had a bit of a profile, and I was not faced by cameras or studios or interviews. And so I was probably the only singer of the right age and sound who was Asian in the country. And he just happened to find me. How old were you when you'd done the children's drama? Because you you were like sixteen when the when when ever so lonely uh, hit the charts. Yeah, I was fourteen, thirteen, fourteen. Wow. Here, here's a random question. Rewinding even farther back, how how has your relationship with your um, ancestral family been before this part of your journey started? You know, how how do you even get there? Where were your musical roots from? How do you where do you learn to sing? We, we weren't officially one of those families that uh, is made up of musicians. We weren't professional musicians. As I'm sure you know, um, professions tend to run in families within the sort of Hindu right, structure. Right. Uh, the caste system kind of works like that. If your father was a leather worker, you'd probably be a leather worker yourself. Right. So we weren't one of those. But um, I was mixed race, had an English grandmother, and so we were already kind of outside the, the norm. 
because as you can imagine, uh, uh, my grandparents, an Indian, fully full-blooded Indian man and a, an English woman, getting married in the twenties. I mean, that was wow. <laughs> that was boundaries. That was really pushing the boundaries. So, um, so much power to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They went for it. Um, but uh, my and my mother had a good voice before she ruined it with smoking, and I think she sympathised with my love of singing and I was one of those kids who wouldn't shut up huh. I was I was singing please please release me by Engelbert Humperdinck with all the lyrics at three years old I was wow. I I sang every jingle on tv I knew all the words I just had one of those brains and um I was quite a weedy child and I wasn't getting enough exercise so my mum sent me to uh, a tiny little local dance school hmm. just just to make sure I used my muscles properly because I was wasting away and to give me a bit of an appetite and um, I mean we were in South London in poor part of, was then a poor part of London and there was a lot of national front activity so it wasn't really safe to go out and walk or run or go to the park on your own because you know there was these skinheads would you know come and intimidate you or, or um. you know there was that kind of activity going on so she took me to this dance class and then I was really lazy at primary school so in the end she and she she was quite concerned about the amount of racist bullying I'd had in primary school and in those days the teachers were kind of complicit because they wouldn't listen yeah and you tried to tell them that you were being bullied right and they didn't see that as complicity but of course it was right and there was this one kid in my class Poor kid now, I think of it. Um, his father was a, uh, a, a member of the National Front and he adored his father and thought it was his job to go around aping all the slogans, the National Front slogans, right. you know, calling me a packy and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, I was kind of lazy and demotivated at primary school and she was worried that I would encounter worse bullying at secondary school hmm. and there was this private school the only one we didn't have a car it was the only one within a, a walk away and it happened to be a theater arts school hmm. and she said well we can get you a scholarship to go which i did i got a scholarship but they will check your report every single turn so you have to work at your academic subjects and in return, you get to do the stuff that you like for three hours a day. Wow. And it was at that school that they had an agency and uh, they got me the part in Grange Hill because all the BBC producers looking to cast school children, it was a school-based drama, and oh. all the actors were 16. Um, um, so they, they would obviously go around all the theatre arts school looking for the right people. I'm curious, maybe ask what the name of the series was. Oh, Grange Hill. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. Is it online somewhere? I think there are some horrible clips on YouTube, <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, 16 is still a very, very young age to be on the charts, to debut on the charts. Do you have any yeah. memories and how that made you feel? Oh, um, it was incredible. Huh. I mean, I think I was really lucky because I got six months of fame. I didn't get the paparazzi and I didn't get the really irksome aspects of fame. But I got six months of being this ignored, um, from being this ignored introverted kid to suddenly being wanted and having huge amounts of attention wow. and 
Yeah, it was fantastic. And it set my career up because at that point I could ring up anybody in the music business and say, can I have a 10-minute meeting? And I could get it. I mean, anybody. Wow. You know, I've just been in the charts. They were going to take the meeting. So that was an incredible leverage to have at that age. And you were literally, I'm I'm guessing, you were literally the only coloured singer with that profile female colored singer there with that profile plenty, plenty of fantastic black british acts i don't mm. know how many were in the charts because they tended to be an american bias mm. but i was the only south asian one yeah in mm. india what was happening concurrently was that we had kind of finished our disco craze in sort of 7980 right. if you remember and we we sort of had disco in europe from about 76 to 1980, was the big, everything was disco. Mm-hmm. And Boney M Huge and all that. And Donna Summer and all, all those sorts of, when you hear those classic disco tracks, they're sort of from that era. And then the press decided that disco was out. Yeah. It was out of fashion. And so you couldn't get arrested if you were making a disco record. But one of the people who... Um, did loads of those lush string arrangements and disco arrangements was called Bidu. And I think he was of um, Pakistani extraction. And he thought, well, I'll just take this back to India and Pakistan because they're not fed up with disco there. And so he took an English singer called Nazia Hassan from West London. Right. And a couple of massive albums with her. But the thing is that they were only hits in India and Pakistan. And because I was someone who didn't go back to India and Pakistan, I didn't have the money to be sort of uh, going to Asian cinemas or uh, all that sort of stuff. It completely passed me by. Hmm. So if you're talking about being one of the only Asian ones, in fairness, I have to say that Nazia was huge before me, but in India and Pakistan. That is super fair of you to say. Well, no, of course. I feel like I interrupted you. Please, please keep keep going. No, I was just, I was just going to say in terms of the UK, you're right. I was, I was, yeah, I think I'm pretty much the first. That's that's one of the most interesting aspects um, of my introdu- reintroduction to your music because uh, when my quintessential white friend from college said, "Hey, you got to check this out," without even realizing that you know. I'm South Asian. She she probably even know. She probably thought I was Mexican or something. Um, <laughs> um, it was a stark confrontation with how two parallel universes had been existing. Though, and I'm referring to uh, the British Asian community and India, by the way, not Europe and India. Um, somewhat oblivious to each other's movements, right? We weren't oblivious. What was happening at that time was that the older part of the British Asian community in the early 80s were very concerned that fusion was a a diluting of their culture. Ah. And they were very much against it in the early 80s. I think they they came around. But then India was hugely snobbish about anything to come out of the British Asian community. Tell us more. 
Well, because they regarded us, uh, us as some kind of cultural outpost. And they, they thought, well, we've got all the best classical singers. We've got all the best classical teachers. We've got all the best classical instrumentalists. So what could you out there in your tiny little communities in Birmingham and Southall, what, what could you possibly produce that's better than, than what we have? Wow. But what they reckoned without was fusion. And what they reckoned without was our closeness to the cutting edge of modern pop and rock. Right. So what we had was that. And while they were still listening to, you know, disco in, in 83, 84, we were, we were off doing other stuff. And so I don't think it was really until the Asian underground of the eight, late 90s or even the early 2000s that India suddenly woke up and went, oh, my God, they're making this fusion music which we don't even know how to make, and they've got massive respect for it around the world. Um, and then they dropped their snobbish attitude. But that's the reason they went along quite obliviously, because, you know, in the 80s, and, and actually I was speaking to Najma Rakta, um, a couple of days ago, and she was saying she has never been invited to play in India. Yeah, slightly familiar with the vibe. Uh, yeah. Even though not to the extent to which you probably faced it. Yeah, yeah. But may I ask you, when would you say was the earliest, when was the first time you were made to feel aware of that discrimination happening against you? You've already pointed out that I'm 16 years old, I'm in the charts, and unfortunately... That means representing your community because at that time there were no role models. There were very few Asian people on television and most of them were on this specialist program called Naya Zinbegin Naya on a Sunday morning. And it's time spot tells you everything. It was called New Way, New Life. It had been running for over 10 years and it was basically about helping new Asian immigrants to integrate hmm. into England or into the UK. And it was very old-fashioned. It was run by some <laughs> terrible middle-aged fuddy-duddies. And, um, well, you know, when they started, what they were doing was helpful. But yeah. they, hadn't they hadn't recognized that the second generation was growing up and had a completely different yeah. outlook. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, all people ever saw of Asian people was this program. <laughs> and what that meant was that even within Grange Hill and certainly within Monsoon, I was having to represent my community. So there was a huge pressure on me not to put a foot wrong, not to say the wrong thing, not to do anything scandalous. And here we're talking about, you know, wearing a skirt above the knee would be scandalous. Wait, wait, so um, was this the, the British Asian community um, setting the bar for what qualified as scandalous or the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't show us up. Okay. Don't oh, show okay. us up because we, we hardly ever get represented and, and the first image that people see right. cannot be a bad has to be a good one gotcha. so that was a huge you know it was a huge amount of pressure on a 16 year old particularly because i'm not from one of the large demographics i'm not punjabi i'm not gujarati i'm not a muslim um i'm south indian i'm mixed race i was born a christian i'm a meat eater my grandparents had a love marriage my parents had a love marriage i'm completely outside all of the mores gotcha. of mainstream Hindu and Muslim culture. Yeah. And yet I was having to learn about them and conform because I was representing all these people due to the color of my skin and the influences in my music. So um, 
that's when I became aware of the tensions between the communities, the different communities within the UK, between the different generations of, you know, older Asians and the, the, the generation that were just coming up, and also the snobbishness between India and the UK, the cultural snobbishness. Um, you, you know, you couldn't escape that. Did you ever feel caught in the middle? Oh, yeah, hugely, because, you know, it was so easy to put a foot wrong. And I didn't want, I mean, I was on their side in the sense that I knew how important it was for there to be a positive representation. There had, there had in terms of drama, there had actually been some quite racist representations of Asian women. There was a, a, there was a so-called comedy show called Mind Your Lang from the 70s. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Absolutely hailed as dreadfully racist in almost every sense. <laughs> and the, and the, the stu- and it was about some English language students at a further education college. Yeah, I remember and the that stupid, The stupidest student was, do you remember, Jamila, this yeah. middle-aged Asian lady in a sari who would never get the answer right. That was what the publish- public knew. Yeah, about the most surprising aspect of that, it still has enormous viewership in India. <laughs> That's irony of it all. Indians love that series. Well, why would Indians understand what's happening there? Because they don't experience racism in the same way. Um, they think Jamila is a stupid person. They don't understand that in the UK, she's not a stupid person. She's an Asian woman. Right. That's what they don't care. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, racism in India is a whole different kind of worms. That would take an entire season of episodes, to be absolutely honest. The point I'm trying to get towards here is that's a lot of pressure for a 16-year-old girl who just made it to the charts. I mean, making it to the charts at 16 is intense enough. And then to shoulder the responsibility of representing a community that's standing up for its um, very initial stages of establishment. Jesus, I mean, I wouldn't even uh, know how to go about it. I'd be so clueless. You just, it was like a roller coaster ride. You just had to hang on and hope you didn't fall out. That was all you could do. I mean, you couldn't catch every curveball, but you just you just had to do your best. But what was your source? I mean, what was your, uh, I got, I'm, I'm, and I'm genuinely curious when I ask this, I'm trying to figure out the, the best way to formulate this. What was it that you held on to for a form of authentic guidance? In what sense? Or authentic guidance to, in what way authentic? Right. On on how to go about Because from what I gather, I mean, you, you were having all, you know, crap loads of input from all over the place, none of which really came from a space of authenticity and non-agenda, like unbiased spaces. Everyone, you know, all the information you were being given came from a space of bias anyway, from from what I've gathered till now. So how did mm-hmm. you manage to process all of that and still kind of maintain your authenticity and keep going? I, I think what you've got to remember is that when you're an artist, it's uh, it's about the ultimate in authenticity. It's about representing the musical world inside yourself. So true. And there had to be, uh, there, there was a point where, I mean, for a start, no one was making a sound quite like Monsoon. It was distinctive. And even if it wasn't recognized as such by people who were familiar with all the different ways you could make Asian fusion. Um, but, I mean, when Monsoon broke up, 
I decided to make four solo albums because the, the record company had been strong arming us. I decided to make four solo albums in two years on a on an independent label, and there I was making music that was, you know, it's very individual to me. Yeah. Um, it didn't sound like the Beatles. No. It sounded a bit like Monsoon, and then with my second album, I broke with that and decided to make um, uh, an album called Quiet, which was a, a series of 10 lyric lyricless soundscapes based on uh, using the voice as an instrument, so layered up for voice. Um, and, you know, <laughs> what 19-year-old do you know who decides to do that, let alone an Asian one? So at that point, you can you couldn't say, oh, this is the Asian sound. You had to say, this is Sheila Chandra's sound. FYI, I've been uh, listening to your music past 24 hours on, on loop. Not the first time, just, <laughs> not, not the first time, but just kind of revisit. And here's, the, here's one of the first things which struck me. That sound is so timeless. I mean, it's still, it, uh, you could tell me this song came out last week and I'd believe you. Which other. which tracks are you thinking of? Um, I, I would check. I'm terrible with names, except my playlist is on the phone. I'm speaking to you on, so I can't. Yeah, all right. But uh, ever so okay. ever so lonely. Um, or the solo, uh, the solo, solo version, voice. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, the thing is, when you when you ignore trends and make music that is distinctive enough. Exactly. You can't, I mean, fashion is a wheel and it turns. And if you were never on it in the first, on the wheel in the first place, then I, you get that kind of timeless quality. Yeah. But equally at the time, you get people saying, don't make music like this. It's, it's, it's not commercial. Mm. And the Ever So Lonely Eyes Ocean track, which I believe R&B remixed and was a massive hit in Germany, and then we sued them for the, because they'd done it without permission, we sued them for the royalties. Huh. Um, and we won. But um, the original voice and drone track, and I make that distinction because your podcast is made in Germany and people may have heard the R&B version without knowing the backstory. Right. And without knowing that actually it started out, as you will know, as a simple drone and a single voice over the top of it for the whole track. Right. For two minutes, 30 or whatever it is. Now, I wanted to make that track for two reasons. One was that I was playing live for the first time. I'd been a studio artist for 10 years and I decided it was time to play live. But that I decided the best way to learn about playing live was to get rid of all the stuff I could hide behind. So I needed a set of material where I could go on stage with a drone alone and produce the fusion within my own voice. So that became the musical challenge for that. But the other reason to do it was that I knew people would want to hear Ever So Lonely, and I didn't want 48 instruments on stage with me to be able to recreate it, but I knew they were going to be just disappointed if they didn't hear it. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to show my musical evolution between 1982 and 1992. Mm -hmm. So I, I effectively did a cover of the very full... Um, you know, it was, it was full of texture and... Uh, instrumentation, and it was 48 tracks of instruments on the original monsoon version of Ever Salome in 1982. And then I pared it back down to this solo voice and drone version. And it, it was pre pure practicality, really. It just meant I could rock up anywhere and sing it. <laughs> it didn't wow. need, wow. didn't need I, 
Like, I'd have never thought that would that was the crux of the motivation behind it because it sounds so beautifully designed. The, the, it's it's very intricate stuff, like super subtle, but the way you go about the the effects, the way you use them, I, I'm extremely surprised when you tell me that. I had no idea that was the motivation behind it. Were your first concerts with a band then? The very first ones before you went solo. I did one gig with Monsoon at the Bharatiya Vidya Bhavan in London for Independence Day in 1981. Huh. And it was just a way of getting the band to rehearse together for an event. We were on for like 20 minutes and we did four songs and, you know, it, it made no impact whatsoever because that wasn't the strategy with Monsoon. Monsoon was always going to be a, a, a recording band. Okay. So that was that was uh, that was about nine, eight, nine months before we released the single version of Absolutely. Gotcha. I ask because a lot of singers um, go, need to go to a lot of processing and a lot of uh, rite of passage, for lack of a better term. So taking that step, going on stage completely solo. I mean, that's a very brave thing to do. Not a lot of singers manage. Um, I was quite stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> But was that a transition that needed a lot of work for you internally or were you just a born natural standing on stage alone? No, I wasn't. And I did okay as far as nerves was were, were concerned uh, for those initial performances. But then I, I had a, an emergency eye operation a year or two later and I oh, didn't yeah. know it, but it, it had damaged my voice. Yeah. And when I started having voice problems, then I got terrified because... Um, it's one thing to stand on stage knowing you're in full command of your instrument with everybody looking at you mm -hmm. and having one shot at a famous song that they know all the words to and they know where all the notes should be. That's one thing. And I was fine with that. But to stand on stage in the same situation and not know what your voice is going to do, mm. that's absolutely terrifying. So I had terrible, terrible stage fright quite a long time because I, I knew I couldn't allow my voice anymore in quite the same way. I've been through something similar where uh, I couldn't play a piano for a few months where my hand just wouldn't work for me. But I can only imagine um, the amount of um, pain that caused you like also internally, not just physically. How, how, yeah. how do you deal with it? If I may ask. Well, I didn't know I didn't know it was wrong, and um, unfortunately, I hadn't been to a vocal ENT uh, before that, so they didn't know when they when they put the camera down my throat. They didn't know what they were looking at. They didn't know what healthy looked like. Oh, wow. They could only see state of my. If I if I'd been an opera singer, I'd have gone for checkups, regular checkups, and mm -hmm. they would have had previous films to compare it to. Right. But you know, I, I know the medical textbooks imply that we're all standard but actually we're not and everybody's heart is shaped a little bit differently and everybody's larynx is shaped a little bit differently which is why you get some things to a good opera and some i mean i could never sing opera i don't have the right larynx for it mm -hmm. um, so it was very difficult because it was well over a decade before i got a, a proper diagnosis and in the meantime a lot of people gaslighted me yeah. I mean, there's a big New Age community near where I live, and the sort of familiar, now discredited, but it wasn't recognised as gaslighting then, of, oh, you don't want to sing, you just want attention. Whoa. And so I had to 
I had this physical problem actually caused by an operation, but I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, I had my best friend saying stuff like that to me. And, um, that must have been painful. Or, it was. It was very painful. The lack of support was extremely painful. I mean, you, you come across an extremely strong, authentic person. And after having gone through an experience like that, what would you say was the driving force behind that? Well, I think two things helped me. One is if you've had a difficult childhood where you've suffered a loss of racism, you, you have to develop internal strength. You can't be the kid that goes along with their friends and gets drunk and ends up in Leicester Square paralytic on a park bench. Because A, the police won't treat you in the same way as if you're a white boy. Yeah. You're much more vulnerable to police violence. B, some gang will probably get hold of you and try to, or some pedophile and try and groom you. Mm. Um, and because your parents will literally kill you. I mean, that's the stuff on a killing is made of. <laughs> if nothing else works, there's always the parents. <laughs> yeah. And um, you have to be, when you're white, friends particularly white male friends are um doing that teenagery thing of being irresponsible and just trying life out you know that you cannot afford to make mistakes because they're going to be held against you in a way that they will not be held against the average white kid yeah. you know that yeah um, so you know i was kind of 40 years old when i was 12 because i knew full well that one mistake entertain one person from the wrong crowd and I could find myself very quickly in a situation I had no control over and we're talking the inner city London you know we're talking gangs we're talking drugs we're talking grooming we're talking all that stuff was going on outside my door yeah and we haven't even approached gender bias yet no yeah. no well I mean if we're talking gangs and we're talking the way that gangs use young teenage girls we are in a way yeah. you know and the rape and the sexual assault that goes along with all that. And, I mean, I didn't even know the extent to which that went on, but I just had a huge instinct about it. So I think when you when you grow up with that, you, you, you kind of maybe a bit overly serious, but you do become incredibly strong, and you're not influenced by what other people say. You have an internal compass that says, do I really want to do this? Is this really a good idea? Even though everybody thinks it's you know, it would be such an amazingly fun thing to do. Do I really think it's a good idea for me to do it? And um, you get good at saying no and being called a sport sport and being not included in things and being called a fuddy-duddy and all that stuff. I mean, you get really good at that. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that made me strong was the fact that singers are absolutely bonkers about singing, where true singers are... It, for us, it's a vocation. We are absolutely crazy and we will do anything, mm -hmm. anything to keep singing. And so I persevered through through that time until I got some of my vocal function back through various methods. And then I was able to play live again in a limited way. I couldn't write on my voice. And that was, that was for me a great shame because if essentially from 1995 onwards, I could not write on my voice anymore. So my musical development stops in 1995. Right. And, um, I mean, 2001, this sentence is true. It's considered a pioneering album, but if you, it's not vocally pioneering. Hmm. They are interesting sound collages, but they're not vocally pioneering if you analyse the technique in them. So... 
Um, but by 2005, 2006, I was able to contemplate playing live again. And then I got a second blow, which is that I developed burning mouth syndrome, which is another layer of pain now. So I don't just have what's going on in my throat. I also have neurological pain in my mouth, which stops me speaking very much. So I've been quiet for three days that I could speak to you, and I'll have to be quiet for another three days after I speak to you to recover from long-lasting pain from wow. both my throat and my mouth. Okay, my gratitude levels just went up to an entirely different league for that. Thank you so much. I mean that yeah. generally. Wow. That was actually the second um, point on my list when I started off this podcast. Number one being yours is the music I grew up on. Secondly, I also know that speaking isn't the easiest thing for you to do. It, it does have a set of consequences you have to kind of deal with as well mm. so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart thank you very much you're welcome this seems like a good time to make a noise popping a voice speak <laughs> <laughs> at which point do you think the, in, the inspiration to get into coaching started to happen i mean you're coach for stick the artist and um, i've actually been reading your book for a while now i mean um, I, I had a couple of years back and i'm a very strange reader by the way i read books and forget them and I, I, I struggle to remember words, but I kind of, I say I remember the vibration of a book more than I do the words. I also say books kind of find their readers when the time is right, and yours is definitely a testimony to that case. Um, at a time where I think my entire paradigm of the lifestyle of an artist was going undergoing major changes. I was kind of tired of, uh, you know... Fulfilling a stereotypical image of a dysfunctional, self-destructive, uh, romanticized uh, disaster. Unfortunately, dysfunction and physical chaos right. and emotional chaos are great uh, cinematic and uh, novel-orientated synonyms, metaphors, yeah. synonyms, metaphors for the creative process itself. I, and so we've had this... I don't know, 300 years of propaganda about what artists are like. Oh, yeah. Which, which is really not the case. Uh, compared to uh, the way Romeo and Juliet and both of them dying at the end of it has been sold as the greatest love story ever. I mean, yes. how effed up is that, if you think about it? Well, I think it's, it's, it's going back to sort of gender parity, romance, if you think about the the level of propaganda about the fairy tale happy ending that is pushed at women mm -hmm. right from the minute they're born. Um, it's all about looking pretty. It's all about being pleasing. It's all about being emotionally competent enough to handle the relationship for both of you. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fairy tale princess marrying her prince, every single rom-com, every single women's magazine um, and so for your films passing the Bechdel test, you know what the Bechdel test is? Nope. So in film, and this was devised in the 80s, and if you look it up, it's, kind of, it's sort of shocking how many films don't pass the Bechdel test. There's a certain amount of time, I think it's two minutes, within a whole film where two female characters need to talk to each other, not about a man. Wow. And so many films, even in this day and age, do not pass the Bechdel test. Wow. So 
And actually, if you look at the stats, you understand, you start to understand why the propaganda is so great. Because on every single measure, men are advantaged by marriage. Women are not. Their life expectancy goes down. Their health goes down. Their mental health goes down. Their labor goes up. Their unpaid labor, labor goes up. Women is, marriage is an incredibly bad deal for women. Incredibly yeah. bad. Not, objectively, it's not a choice you would make. Right. Except that you know, all of us as human beings need to be loved and need to be special to someone. But the fact is the way that marriage and relationships are constructed in our society, it is measurably a very bad deal for women. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, huge amount of propaganda. I've forgotten the original question now. <laughs> <laughs> no, there aren't any original questions on this podcast per se. You know, only original answers, and yours is qualifies as as one of those. About propaganda artists as well. Propaganda well, artists. I, I feel like, and although I think I'm not, I don't, I'm not articulate enough right now to exactly express why, but I feel like there's a connection between. Um, I find some sort of a parallel between that paradigm of you know, true love being about pain. Um, and art being about pain because art is true love too you know that's definitely a true form of love and do you want to know why i think there's a huge parallel absolutely yes because um creativity is essentially archetypically feminine absolutely it's about uh, reproduction it's about the the building of something out of nothing, where the plant comes up out of the earth in, a, in an apparently miraculous process, in the way that before we knew about man's role in, in conception, the way a woman grows a child inside her, apparently magically grows a whole new human being, and the way that animals do that as well, with, with female animals do that with their young. I think once you have a patriarchal, modality within society you necessarily have to um produce lots of propaganda about uh all other feminine type archetypal processes including the growing of food if you look at the the devaluation of food cheap food in our culture and how farmers i don't know about in germany but in the uk i mean farmers are paid a pittance for their crops they're totally messed around by the big supermarkets smaller farmers are going bankrupt by the by the dozen um the price of milk that a farmer gets paid and the price of two pints of milk in a supermarket i mean bears absolutely no relationship to what it costs to actually produce that food stuff Mm. and farmers are kind of closest to that process the earth and they've been devalued. Caregiving has been devalued. Uh, unpaid care has been devalued of older people and of children. Um, teachers are being devalued. They're being asked to do everything at the moment and being sent back into potentially com- coronavirus-riddled environments. Mm. It's all about nurture and um, creativity. You know, the, I mean, what what Spotify has done and streaming has done to artist royalties has absolutely decimated the industry. Yes. There isn't there isn't a way, certainly at my level, there isn't a way now of making a living. I mean, I've lost my voice, yeah, it's a tragedy. But even if I hadn't, there wouldn't be an industry to go back to. It's been absolutely decimated. I could not 
I, you know, as an artist, you need time. You need emotional space. You need mental space. You can't go out for four, five, or eight hours doing a bookkeeping job and then come home and expect to make great music. Yes. You can, you can make music, but it's much, much harder. And the kind of creative leaps you're going to make, you're going to make them on an exhausted mind. It's yes. like asking an Olympic athlete to go out and work on a treadmill like a donkey for eight hours and then do the long jump. It's not going to work yeah. in, in quite the same way. And I think there are some valiant artists making good work, but the whole structure of the industry has changed. And it's to do with this devaluing of the feminine. It's to do with de the devaluation of, of creativity and nurture. I completely agree with you. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Those, those are very, very valuable words. Uh, that's one of the most articulate and well put explanations of what's going around. I mean, depending on how far people's belief systems are malleable, but I mean, the the inappropriate behavior towards the feminine on all levels has never been evident in the way it has been in 2020, I think. I mean, 2020 in, in a lot of ways, I think, is the biggest reflection of that phenomena on multiple yeah. levels. Uh, and it plays into um, race, it plays into indigenous people, it plays into colonization. Yeah. All you know, it plays people, people thinking they can go around owning other countries and pillaging them yep. and, and painting their indigenous people, you know, genocide of indigenous people. It's all to do with that. It's all to do with the dominance model that's about pillage and lack of respect and about the projection of all your flaws actually that's what right people seem to do yeah i mean they, they, are, they were lazy enough to go and get millions of indians to do all the work for them and they'll turn around and call immigrants lazy yeah it's purely a projection of themselves yes and it's, it's actually uh, for those of those of us familiar with the language that is quintessentially representative of toxic masculinity well masculinity unfortunately in our day and age and i don't think it was by going back in the, the midst of time but masculinity is almost defined by its rejection of femininity masculinity is defined as everything femininity is not and actually it tells you a huge thing about masculinity as we define it in our time which is that femininity is like a planet which masculinity revolves around mm. because if you define your masculinity as your ability to dominate women if you get turned on by dominating women and, and for a lot of men that's what their that's what their sexual instinct has been trained towards yeah. um, if you if you define yourself as not being a sissy that essentially means that you um, you are a man only because you reject the feminine yeah. Which says you are a moon. You are a moon around the planet femininity. You, if cut away the planet femininity, and you don't know who you are. You're defining yourself by what you're not. Uh, it's psychotic, really. It, it's, it's a killer for our planet, as well as for the two women in the week in, in the UK. Two women every week who, who die from domestic violence. Yeah. I mean, the word vulnerability is going around like like it hasn't in ages, and men's inability to show the same. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's addressed on one hand. I'm also slightly irked at the way it's been marketed and kind of already being um, used as a commodity. But It's like yoga or mindfulness. It gets yeah, exactly. locked off from its original root and then gets... Exactly. And it kind of loses its soul. Exactly. I could really do with a worthy substitute sometime in the near future. But yes, but I, I wouldn't want to... Uh, let that, this topic go without you expressing what you think is the ideal form of masculinity. I'd love to hear that from you. I'm not a man, and which I, is exactly why I'm asking you. You know, the Native American definition of the word warrior, mm. which we in the West take from the Greek roots of Mars, the god of war. Mm. Um, for them, a warrior was a person who, and notice a person, not a man, mm. who was willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of the tribe. Right. So that might mean on the front line of a battle, but it might also mean um, going up into the mountains and getting that herb that will cure something because there's an epidemic in your village. Right. It, it might mean helping a mother through a difficult labor and making difficult decisions. It might mean helping an elderly disabled person and being their eyes or their ears. Yeah. I think our whole definition has to change. And I think the thing that beyond vulnerability, that's just scratching the surface. So well said. Vulnerability is, a, it's about, um, oh, dare I be slightly less than the toxic masculine image of what a man is. It's, it's nothing. If you really want to be radical as a man, I think that the, the two skills you've got to relearn are self-care and how to nurture others. Because too many men, however soft and fluffy they are, they would never sort of hit their girlfriend or yell or be aggressive, don't know how to look after themselves. And what they're asking for is a massive input of care mm. from their significant other. Yeah either gay or straight, the person that does it, even if they're male, gets cast in a certain role because they are the carer, the nurturing one. Yeah. And um, only after you have learned to care for yourself, emotionally, physically, on every single level you can think of, can you be capable of properly nurturing the other person. And if you don't nurture the other person in the relationship, then... You've got this horrible one-way emotional labor, physical labor, completely unpaid, unacknowledged going on. Yeah, and that paradigm can be is applicable to so many things happening in the world right now. Well, so many progressive men, so-called progressive men, who talk talk the talk, they don't walk that kind of walk, and they really need to. Yeah, intimately familiar with that. Also, as a man myself, I can tell you, I, I, I want to walk the walk and I notice it's easier said than done, you know. I'd like also, to think I'm walking haven't... the walk, but I'm constantly confronted every day on how, how much there's a gap. I'm working on the gap, but I'd be a complete liar if I said it's non-existent. I don't even know yeah. who I'm supposed to... Uh, I, I'm, I'm lucky I come from a certain background where uh, I grew up... Um, uh, and the family, well, my parents were, they were very equal on, on a lot of levels, especially for their time. 
So I'm yeah. super, super blessed. It's it's a privilege. In in spite though, there's still lineage in there which I'm still figuring out. Wider culture, you get messages all the time. It's exactly. a continuous process. Exactly. Sheila, I just want to ask, how, how are we doing the time and your voice? I can manage another 20 minutes. I'm all right. Excellent. You were talking about coaching. You asked a long time ago. You were... This is so all I... related to this, though. And it, it, I feel like you, you're answering all those questions anyway. In fact, even more so. Uh, I do remember reading a, a very specific line, which I was planning to read out from my phone, which I can't anymore. I'm sorry about that. But the crux of it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, how dysfunctionality and lack of organizational skills makes an artist vulnerable uh, to the kind of toxic music business kind of person who yeah. still lives off that crappy paradigm of artists being you know, dysfunctional, yeah. people you can just milk off, so to speak. So yeah. um, would you elaborate a little more on that? How do I, as an artist, not enable that cycle, cycle of toxicity? Well, I think when I started, there were a lot more people who um, were working off that paradigm. And it was in part because artists didn't share information. And it was also in part because artists didn't get to meet that much. I mean, you'd meet if you're paying, playing on the same bill. But the festival scene wasn't as huge as it is now. Mm-hmm. We didn't have social media. We didn't have forums where artists would get artists would get together, and there was very much a sort of certainly among female singers, there was a very much a sort of divide and conquer, pitting them against each other based on looks and encouraged jealousies, and, and that was the kind of paradigm that I grew up as um, a, as a female singer with. Wow. And, and of course, it still operates to a degree today. Um, but I think artists do share information more, and I think there's a lot more basic information out there. There are a lot more books and blogs and, and things that will tell you what is a basic good deal. Who are? I mean, I can Google music business solicitors and find. If I went to a family solicitor, they'd have no idea about entertainment law or the principles of a record contract. If you didn't know the name of a music business solicitor in the 80s, then you didn't know where to go and get advice. And um, so that sharing of information, but also for you in terms of your responsibility as an artist, recognize uh, the other th- other paradigm that I think was encouraged was, well, I'm an artist, I don't deal with all that stuff. I'm Byron, you know, I'm mad, bad and dangerous to know. I don't do mm. accounting. I don't do making sure, checking my contracts. I don't, you know, I just... I just breeze in like a tornado, give fantastic performances and breeze out again. And this is film and television and, and kind of the myth making around people like Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and all that. So in fact, I mean, certainly Jimi Hendrix was very, very disciplined in the studio. Yeah. And it was the days when engineers wore white gloves and you had to call them sir. And, you know, it was not Jimi Hendrix on the stage in the studio. Wow. Because he respected people who were helping him craft a sound. Yeah. And he respected that hierarchy. And um, so I think taking responsibility for, and it's hard and it's boring, very hard, very boring, but taking responsibility for learning the conventions of your fields, learning the legal conventions, learning what's expected, going and consulting with your 
fellow, if it's music, musicians, producers, writers, some of them will be up front with you, some of them will mislead you, some of them will be very generous with their time. Hmm. And I think consulting with artists who are in slightly different fields is useful too because they can point out um, some of the discrepancies and maybe things you should be asking for without there being too much competition between you, gotcha. without competition being a, a, an issue. So I think this, the, the sort of networking that artists have the ability to do these days, even sitting, in, even as we're all in lockdown, sitting in front of our computer screens, mm-hmm. is, is amazing. But I recognized in writing that book that there is a work culture to every industry. And I was lucky enough that I met Steve Coe when I was 16 and he'd been in the business for 14 years and he knew a lot of these conventions. So I had access to that as a resource but a lot of, I mean, if I was growing up now as a teenager in the inner city with no musical family, no musical connections, and stage school, theatre art school wasn't very good for those because it wasn't in the music business. It was more about musical theatre, and it was trying to funnel me that way. Mm-hmm. And that was not what I wanted to do. So where do you learn this stuff? And that's why I wrote the book. Right. Because there are lots of specialist guides on social media or the legalities of being a songwriter, but they're so confusing if you're just starting out. So true. So I wanted to set out an infrastructure right from the nitty-gritty of how do you organise your studio, right to what's going to happen to your copyrights when you're dead, who's going to administer them, and how will they know what to do. Right. And that's what the book takes you through all that structure, and it means that when that big break comes along, you're ready you know what's expected. You've got your contracts in place. You know what to ask for. Yeah. Any thoughts on the self-care part of it as well? Well, self-care at the moment is a very important thing, isn't it? I mean, um, I think emotionally we're all, those of us with any sense, I think, are, particularly in countries where coronavirus is not being handled very well, are bearing an extra emotional load. Because... Mm. I don't know about how, I mean, I think it's better in Germany than it is here, but in the UK, we've been, it's been handled extremely poorly. I have lupus, so I'm on immunosuppressants, which means I'm extremely vulnerable to COVID. I have kidney damage, kidney issues, and lung issues. And I'm on this medication that suppresses my immune system to keep me alive. Gotcha. But it means that if I, if I caught COVID, it would be extremely bad. Mm. And I have diabetes as well. So, that, you know, I, I've got a full house there. And I, I, I'm still on lockdown. I mean, a fo- lockdown officially ended here on August 1st, and I'm still locked down. And, and I'm carrying the emotional baggage of trying to stay safe and anticipate how to work around uh, the dangers in a country which is being deliberately badly led. Mm. And I think artists who are sensitive and thoughtful all around the world are feeling somewhat similar, especially if they're in a country like the UK. Yeah. And there's no good pretending that that doesn't impact your creativity and doesn't impact your emotional energy as well as your mood. Exactly. And, so I think, you know, letting yourself cry, letting yourself have down days, letting yourself have more days off and just getting through it the best you can and recognising that, yeah, Shakespeare may have written King Lear whilst 
there was a plague in London, but you don't have to be Shakespeare. Yeah. You just need to get through it. You need to get through it with yourself intact. Yeah, the, I'm going to remember that you don't have to be Shakespeare. I, I can only repeat that. None of us do. Not anymore, really. I want to respect your time, Sheila. It's it's almost 20 minutes since the last time I asked you how your voice is doing, so I'll ask again. No, it's fine. Um, you were asking about how I made the transition from singing to writing yeah. and from writing to coaching. The reason I ask this is I think many of us artists regardless of the generation we come from, are going to be making more of these transitions. I think being an artist is, has become increasingly interdisciplinary. And mm. The way I see it, someone like you has been a pioneer, not just in, in her work as a singer, but as an interdisciplinary artist as well. So I was hoping you could share some thoughts on the same and how the best way to go about this era is, where we all have to figure out a way to be interdisciplinary one way or the other. Well, in a way, I'm sorry that we have to be, because I think it does scatter your focus too mm. much, probably. Yeah. Um, in my case, it wasn't a choice. Um, it was because I developed Burning Mouth Syndrome, and I knew it was so painful to speak, let alone sing, that I knew I couldn't possibly continue as a singer. Mm. And that was... Uh, being a singer becomes part of your identity so it's a massive identity yeah. shift as yeah. well as uh, you almost don't know who you are if you're not a singer yeah. And because um, it's all anybody ever wants you for and it's all anything it was all anyone ever thinks of you of mm -hmm. and um, I've been doing that since I was 14 and I I like I didn't know what else I could do and also I think there's a bit of a pressure when you've been a virtuoso singer that you know um, Billboard once called me one of the most beautiful voices on earth mm. and that's lovely but then when you can't use that voice anymore it's a little bit well anything I do after this is going to be an anticlimax I'm not I can't expect to have two amazing genius yeah it, two two talents of that level in one lifetime mm -hmm. i found my talent and it's still there but physically i can't do it i can't expect to suddenly find another talent that's just as great um did you feel robbed me, robbed uh, well yeah i suppose because yeah. there's this and i feel guilty because there's this fabulous instrument sitting there, rotting away, never getting a warm-up, degenerating. My brain is still as musical, but I can't listen to music anymore because it's too physically and emotionally painful. So I've got this, I've got all this gear, and it's, I can't use it, and it's degenerating. Mm. And it's sort of like having a Stradivarius and sticking it in a cupboard and letting it rot. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. There's that. No, I can't. It can't be fixed. So yeah, I think it comes with quite a lot of guilt. But especially when people say to me, "Oh, I wish you would sing again. I wish I was like, well, yeah, but that helps. How much pain do you want me to be in? I mean, how much physical pain do you want me to be in so that I can sing for you? Because it would be quite a lot. But we were talking about how I made that transition, and it, 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 
at the very sort of um, grassroots level, I had to go back to that process that you do as a as a young child and a teenager, where you just play at things, where you where you think, well, I don't know what I'm good at, so I'll just do stuff that appeals to me, and I won't expect myself to do it at any kind of standard. I'll just do it. And I had been writing a journal for at that point fifteen years. Mm. And um, I thought, oh, I'll go and take a creative writing class. So I did that. And I, I soon realized that fiction wasn't for me. But I think the journaling really helped because I developed my own voice without any kind of um, censorship. It had been my voice writing into the, into the journals without anyone else reading it. So I, I had actually I had quite a strong voice. And ironically, my writing voice so far anyway has been extremely unlike my singing voice it's not all sort of floaty and comforting it's quite um you know instructional bossy and you know it's quite pretty it's pretty ruthless in a very beautiful way yeah i suppose it is but it's yeah. not it's not soft and comforting or beautiful like a pearl or you, you no, know no, it, the cuts way you, it, it cuts straight through it cuts straight through it cuts straight through yes it does yes. there's no there, there's no but, way you can bullshit what's coming out there <laughs> no, no i have no time yeah um and anyway so i thought well maybe i could be a writer and i certainly wouldn't have because i was looking for something where the other thing is you don't get a choice of profession if you're disabled you get the profession you can physically do and that's the other thing about well maybe i did have another talent but if it involved talking then that's that's career gone you know i can't do it gotcha so, I mean, I might have been a great afternoon speaker. I wouldn't really, but, you know, if I'd had a talent for being an afternoon speaker, it would have been no good. If, if I'd lost my voice, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I had to look for something where I thought, well, I can be silent a lot of the time and I can actually do this job. And, um, and um, a friend, well, lots of friends used to come around to my house and comment that I never tidied up and... It was always tidy. Huh. And they, they wanted to know how I did it. So I wrote this book called Banished Clutter Forever, which was out on Vermillion Random House in 2010. Yeah. I think it was a bit of a culture shock for people because it wasn't a, a subject that expected from me. And also it was written in this quite non-bullshitty <laughs> style. And I think it took, it took people 10 years to get used to that. <laughs> The fact that behind the curtain, that's what it was. And um, and then um, I met Stick in 2008, and I'd been formally sort of giving singers and musicians bits of advice for you know, a good 10 years. And I'd, I'd done work, workshops with Romad mm -hmm. from 1992 onwards. Mm -hmm. And I joined the local choir in the mid-noughties and taught them to a degree as well, to take warm-ups and things. And um, but Stick really needed advice and really took it seriously. So he was homeless when I met him, and he'd had a few group shows. But he 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 said to me that he uh, was afraid to take his career seriously because he knew he'd soon get into trouble and he had no one to turn to for advice or perspective. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Um, so. When he realised I could be that person, when he met me, he didn't know I was a singer. When he realised I was actually qualified to be that person, mm -hmm. he really took it and ran with it. And I intensively mentored him for probably about eight years. 
I love the part where he um, talks about how he was shocked to find there's an entire Sheila Chandra section at the record store he went to in Soho. <laughs> it's like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> that's the lady I was talking to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, it was great because my voice was already going. And certainly before concerts, I would write rather than talk. And he would draw little stickmen in response. So he was one of the few people that wasn't phased by the fact that that was the best way for me to communicate. I mean, not all the time, but some of the time. And um, and now, I mean, his, so his prices are just huge. His, his popularity was one of the foremost street artists in the world. It's quite incredible, his rise. Um, and I think people almost don't believe that I mentored him and that I made that much difference because they kind of can't visualize how he was when I met him. Huh. Um, um, we can't visualize the fact that we were our positions have reversed I mean not that I was ever as big as stick is now but that our positions have reversed so anyway um, I mentored him and because I didn't want to spend all the time talking I wrote down some of my advice in a 16,000 word book for him hmm. it was like a manual for him and uh after a while, uh, around 2014, he started to say, why don't you, it really worked, why don't you expand it and get it published? So he sort of nagged me, nagged me every single well, time we met. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, thank you for the nagging. Uh, it's all his fault. And um, he wrote the foreword for the book and um, Watkins published it. And then I put in a new chapter um uh, a year or so ago, and the new print version was out in January. Mm. So there's a if you if you buy the print version now, and if you own it, and yeah, if you buy the electronic version now, um, there's a new chapter in there as well. Wow! And so that that's called that book is called Organizing Your Creative Career, and that's that's the one which we were we were talking about with the dysfunctional artist and artist infrastructure thing. And then I I um. Um, in the process of revising my third book, I haven't got a deal for it yet, but um, yeah, watch this space. Well, that must have been quite a feeling. It's a bit of pressure, actually, because I really want it to be good. And uh, I need to, um, you know, I need to add all the aspects that are going to make it really good, hopefully. Fingers crossed. I forgot to say that um, I was doing some very short workshop sort of lecture demonstration talks for, I did one at Foils for organizing creative career and there were so many questions and, and I realized that actually there was this huge need for artist coaching yeah. so I started coaching artists via Skype which has been really good for me because it means I can coach people all over the world I've had clients in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and Europe and you know they don't need to leave their bedrooms we can work and I don't need to talk because if we work by Skype, I can type into the IM box. Gotcha. And I ask the questions and they talk. And that means that, in a way, they listen more deeply to themselves and I'm not tempted to interject unless it's really necessary. So we really focus on them and where they, where they are with their career and with their creative process. I suggested that to my therapist recently because she she's been having some vocal um, issues as well. So it's like, why why don't we just get on Skype and type? 
Uh, we might just do that at some point because it seems to be a recurring issue. Uh, well, I, I think it will also force me to articulate more in a more focused manner without, you know, it wouldn't give me a chance to blab, you know, unnecessarily. And um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a sounds like a something worth exploring, like a better term. Um, where's the best place to find you? for our listeners? Um, you can find me at sheilachandra.com. My um, uh, social media handles are all there. Uh, all the social media icons are there. The, the links to buy music are all there. Um, the links to the coaching music and writing parts of my career are all there. And um, there's contact as well if you want my email address. Excellent. I will naturally, of course, add all of these details to the episode notes, which I highly recommend my listeners check out as well. And I know musicians sample my stuff, so there's also instructions about if you've sampled or you want to sample some of my work, what to do legally next, what yeah. to, how to approach that. I'm on the side right now. Wow, this is so well done. Did you author all of the content on it? Yeah. It's so well done. I mean, I've never seen such a well-designed... Well, the the web designer was very good with the navigation because I started out with my websites grew organically so originally I had three sites but in April of this year um, my web designer because I was going to have to upgrade them anyway and he suggested putting all of them at shillychandra.com and structuring the menus the way you see and it was a huge headache but it has turned out quite well most of the guests who I've had the privilege to have on this podcast are people I've met in person except uh, you're probably the second person who I haven't actually met in person like 3D and usually I, um, I, I'll assume that'll be around I don't know five to ten hours of research or something because I want to be as informed as I can in your case it was just okay everything's just here <laughs> like <laughs> ten minutes and I, um, I pretty much got all the information I need it's, I'm super impressed point being before we let you go I have this one last question which is kind of the mission statement, for lack of a better term, for this podcast. Uh, um, I started off thinking I'm going to ask all my guests this question, but it didn't always seem inappropriate. But in your case, I feel it might be tapasya. refers to a certain ancient ancestral uh, ritual of burning away fear and impurities into a holy or sacred fire. If you were in front of the fire, what would it be that you would want to burn away? You know, I don't think I'm going to give you the answer you want to hear. I wouldn't. That's actually a fantastic answer. I wouldn't because I, when you get to being as old as I am, <laughs> um, you realise that the, the flaws and the uncertainties and the difficult feelings, they're all keys to so much more. And I think if I had the temptation of burning away the impure, in inverted commas... That was a terrible word. My apologies, by the way. I just couldn't come up with a better one. Um, I I know the kind of concept you mean. Um, uh, And I I think I would have missed out on so much. I would have discovered... There are whole rooms in my life, in my personality, that I would not have opened the door to and sometimes going through that door was extremely painful like losing my voice extremely painful and um but you know I really enjoy writing 
I really do. And actually, if I hadn't had to walk through it and then the music business had collapsed in terms of royalty revenue, what would I be doing now? So being forced through pain, as human beings, we should, we should make systems work so that most human beings can live, all human beings, including the most vulnerable, can live decently. But if you have to go through pain, sometimes it does open up other levels. And I, and I think actually the concept of burning anything away is, is quite a masculine one. Yeah? Yeah. I think there's a kind of uh, acceptance and all-encompassingness about knowing that you will never be a good person. You will never be a guru. You will never be the expert people think you are. You will never be free of doubt, distraction, insecurity, because even if you work on those things in, in yourself, your health comes along and disrupts you again, and you, you almost become a different person. I'm a different person with lupus than I was two years ago without lupus. Mm-hmm. And my sense of my strengths, I mean, I'm on really heavy medication which keeps me alive, but it's my memory's shot to pieces. I'm just not as sharp as I was five years ago. And mm. that's a payoff. I mean, I'm here and I'm relatively healthy for a person with lupus. But then that alters my perception of what my talents are, what, how I can use them, whether I'm really the expert or the wise person that I might have been kidding myself up to that point that I was. So people are in a state of physical change Mm. and I think it's less noticeable when you're in your 30s and even into your 40s but then when you hit your 50s it starts to become really noticeable people are in a state of constant emotional and physical flux Mm. what they are cannot be defined and what is good about them and what is bad about them cannot always be easily pointed out and um, so Really, the only thing to do is embrace that, to embrace the imperfection of it, to embrace the change of it, and not to be... I mean, women get told all the time, and I did for myself, hankered a long time, because there were some fantastic pictures of me in Monsoon when I was 16 and 17. And in a way, that gets frozen in time. But the fact is, if I was, if I looked like I was 17 now, when I'm 55, it'd just be rather creepy. Mm. I'm not that person. I'm not that gangly youth mm. with that baby smooth perfect skin and nor should I try to be and I think this the whole idea of duality and burning anything away and refining is in a way to misunderstand the process of human beings anyway I completely agree with you I I love that answer personally um, I don't necessarily feel it contradicts the idea of burning something away but you know that's really a personal opinion but I genuinely love the answer thank you to start off with and secondly you're just like way ahead of me that's all like both <laughs> spiritually and I've had a lot of time, let's face it I've had a lot more time well it's not just that it's also the journey you've had and the way you've dealt with all the same it's like an entirely different league of intensity and I, I see you now and, and the way you speak and the positivity you exude and I don't even have the right words I'm not going to try and pretend to find them but uh, it's just 
so apparent that you're just way ahead of us with this. All I can do is thank you for the answer. These are great questions. You know, a lot of the time I do podcasts and people haven't necessarily, because they don't come from a journalistic background, they haven't necessarily done as much research as you have. And also they don't necessarily want to go into the, the, the fine nuances of things that you do. And I've really enjoyed these questions. It's been it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. That, um, I'm going to go do a dance in a, in a bit. Thank you. That's the biggest. <laughs> that just made my day. Um, also, I, I could try and tell you how much of an honor and how, how grateful I am for you to come out and do this with us. But I couldn't. I mean, words won't cut it. So I'm not going to try. Tell you a little story. Please do. I used to do press. I mean, when... My real world stuff was big in America and I was the best selling artist on real world and um, they would send me over to New York or LA to do a week's worth of promotion. So a week's worth of sitting down with journalists who for half an hour at a time or an hour at a time who were basically asking all the same questions. Yeah. And there were two or three journalists who go beyond that and I used to wait all week for those interviews, because they were the ones that made it worthwhile. And this has been one of those conversations. Wow. Um, I, I, I can't even process that right now. That is an honor. Uh, I'm not even sure I deserve, but I will process it in my own time. All I can say is you've been uh, an inspiration on so many levels, and it's, uh, it is not just an honor and a privilege, but almost a blessing i make you sound like 95 year old old or something which is really not the point i'm getting at but uh, you know my artistic and my musical journey wouldn't really exist without you having done what you did before that Thanks. having had any conversation with you would have been an honor but to have you open up and have this conversation at, at the with the level of trust you've um, endowed upon me today is a huge huge honor and I can only repeat, uh, words are not going to cut it, so I'm not going to try. I'm going to stop my efforts then. Um, thank you, Sheila. Thank you. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. FYI, I'm going to stop the recording now. Mm -hmm. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out in.